and welcome to WChat. Today we're interviewing Dr. Mira Shah regarding her work with HIV and the LGBTQ population. This was a topic in our market research that many providers expressed having difficulty navigating. So Stephanie and I are both really excited about this episode because we'll also be doing a few more interviews with Dr. Shaw regarding the amazing work she does with the LGBTQ population. So Dr. Shaw, just to give our listeners a little background about the people we are speaking with, we would like you to talk a little bit about yourself. So could you please tell our listeners about your background, like your education and training and your current practice setting, like where you practice and what type of patients you serve? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So after graduating from college, I came to New York to complete a master's in nutrition from Columbia University. I knew I was going to medical school, but I deferred my admission so that I could gain exposure in areas of healthcare that affected underserved communities. After my master's, I deferred medical school again to work at the United Nations, where I worked with the Non-Governmental Liaison Service, or NGLS. NGLS is an entity of the United Nations that works with civil society around the world and helps bring them into important dialogue that is happening at the UN at the time. I was able to gain exposure to conversations around HIV and AIDS, which was a developing interest for me at the time. I then went to medical school at George Washington University in DC, where I was able to work with underserved communities and learn more about HIV, as well as do a rotation in Swaziland to learn more about HIV care. I then did residency in family medicine at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York City because I wanted training in HIV and family planning. And it was at this time that I became certified in HIV medicine. And then after residency, I started working at Callan Lord in New York City. Callan Lord is a community health center that opened its doors in the early 1980s as the country's first community-based HIV clinic. And now it has broadened its scope to provide care for the entire LGBT community. So I provide HIV care as well as transgender care at Callum Lord. I mean, I'm also currently completing a one year's master's in public health at Columbia University. Thanks, Dr. Shaw. We also like to ask you what informs your practice or your perspective. So why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? So I started working in HIV care and LGBT care because I've always been interested in working with marginalized communities and marginalized healthcare issues, which is the same reason why I'm also an abortion provider. I'm not part of the LGBT community myself, but I am a strong ally and can empathize with what it would be like for someone to say, I don't know how to take care of you, which is what happens and has happened to so many of my patients. Many doctors don't feel comfortable asking patients about gender identity or sexual orientation or sexual behavior, which are all very different things. And if a patient comes in complaining of anal pain, a doctor may not think to ask about anal sex or to include herpes, LGV, or gonorrhea chlamydia to their differential. Or let's say a patient presents as male, 
a doctor may not think to ask the patient about cervical cancer screening or risk of unplanned pregnancy. Or a doctor may knowingly or unknowingly misgender a person, and this can trigger gender dysphoria and create yet another barrier for the patient. So my philosophy in medicine, especially with sexual and reproductive health, is to never assume anything about someone's identity, background, or behaviors, and to try to provide them with the best and most evidence-based compassionate care as possible. Great. So like we said, we're going to discuss HIV in the LGBTQ population. So let's jump right in. And our first question for you is, can you tell us about the advocacy work that you are currently doing within the LGBTQ community? Yes, of course. So advocacy comes in many different forms. I am very involved with the Physicians for Reproductive Health. And I completed a one-year advocacy fellowship with them in 2016. I have since lobbied with congressmen on the Hill. I have spoken to the media about recent legislation as it affects family planning and LGBT health. I've written to congressmen about the potentially harmful downstream effects of restrictive contraception policies. I give talks to medical students and to residents about HIV and about transgender care. For example, just this morning, I gave a talk about gender-affirming surgery to family medicine residents at Mount Sinai. There is a shortage of providers and a lack of training around these issues, so I try to spend as much time as I can in increasing knowledge and potentially sparking interest among trainees. For example, I recently met a group of residents at Columbia and had a conversation about transgender people, about how transgender people have poor access to healthcare. And that immediately turned into another conversation about how exactly to improve training around trans sensitivity in their clinic. And I recently met a medical student who was applying for residency in family plant in family medicine and had no idea that a family medicine doctor can provide abortions before she met me. And now she wants to be an abortion provider. So I think advocacy can come in the form of lobbying or it can form it can come in the form of just being more open and talking to anyone who will listen and has the power to make an impact. Great. And before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty stuff, the other thing I wanted to make sure that our listeners understood or that we talked about was that you mentioned that you're board certified in HIV. What does that mean? So the American Academy of HIV Medicine provides a certification in HIV medicine that lasts for about three years. It involves seeing a certain number of patients living with HIV per year, completing a certain number of CME hours, and then taking an exam. And once all of those things have been completed and confirmed, then you receive a certification in HIV medicine. Okay, and how much of your current practice then involves HIV care? So I would say it's pretty incorporated in my practice. I would say about half of my patient panel is living with HIV. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of give a little extra background of what you are doing. Dr. Shaw, what makes providing HIV care to the LGBTQ population unique? 
So certain people may be at higher risk of HIV because of certain behaviors. And people who are LGBT identified are a subset of the population that carry a higher risk for HIV. So the risk of HIV is increased among those who have receptive anal intercourse, among individuals who are exchanging sex for money, among those who have multiple sexual partners, and engaging in condomless sex, and among IV drug users. And doctors and other medical providers should be aware of these risk factors and feel comfortable about regular screening for HIV or counseling patients about using PrEP to prevent HIV. And providers should also feel comfortable taking a thorough sexual history and offering thorough STI screenings. Many providers do not screen for gonorrhea or chlamydia in the oral or anal cavity, for example, because they aren't aware that, you know, these are areas that can be infected. So you talk about what doctors, you know, some things that they should be looking for, maybe what questions should they be asking so that they understand or it would lead them to doing these appropriate testing? That's a great question. I think it's about asking sort of more targeted questions. For example, instead of saying, are you sexually active? Saying, have you been sexually active in the last six months? And if so, how many partners have you had? And instead of saying, are you sexually active with men, women, or both? Which is what I feel like is traditionally taught. I think it's important to say what genders are you active with and how are you having sex because these types of questions can help determine what screenings are appropriate because if a patient is having anal sex then it's important to screen for gonorrhea chlamydia in in the anus or if the patient is a cisgendered male and is sexually active with multiple other cisgendered men then a discussion about prep may be appropriate So you mentioned some ways to ask questions of patients. Um, You're not really assuming as much. How are some other ways that you communicate with your HIV patients specifically? And what works and what other approaches don't work? So I try to communicate with my patients with as much compassion and care as I can I recognize that everyone's story is unique and everyone's situation is different. I really try to understand where they're coming from. I have a patient who is a transgendered female living with HIV and is exchanging sex for money because she says that it's really for survival. She is taking antiretrovirals and her viral load is undetectable, so her transmission risk is incredibly low. And instead of judging her or lecturing her, I try to understand that she has very few other options for work. And for her, exchanging sex for money is, again, like a matter of survival. So I talked to her about condom use and about protecting herself and her clients. And situations like this are tough, but as a doctor, my job becomes about reducing harm for my patients. Do you have any other uh, patient stories or situations that you feel could be hard for other physicians to navigate, and how do they navigate that? So I think that 
the example that I gave earlier about patients may come to them presenting as male, for example, and talking to patients about their medical history, getting a surgical history, understanding what medications are they're on, talking to them about what pronouns they use and what gender they identify as, what gender that they were assigned at birth. All of these things can help give a clue as to what body parts a patient has. Because ultimately, the body parts that a patient has will help dictate what screenings are appropriate for that patient. So if a patient presents as male and a thorough history that I like the one I described is taken, then a medical provider may then understand that a, this patient needs a pap test, for example, for cervical cancer screening, or the patient may be at risk for unplanned pregnancy and needs a conversation about contraception. So then what other communication tips do you have for providers who also provide HIV care? Maybe we could start at the outset of how do you tell a patient that they have HIV? This is a great question, and I approach this in the same way that I approach a positive pregnancy test. I tell them immediately upon entering the room or upon receiving that result. Now, if it's a test that's done in-house, like when the patient is sitting in front of me, it's like a rapid test and it's positive, I tell them right away, and then I wait to see how they respond. Some patients actually come to me suspecting that they have been infected, and so they have a little bit of mental preparation, and others, you know, respond very differently. And I I really spend the rest of the time listening to them and making sure that they feel that they have all the resources that they need and that they are linked to care. And in other situations where a patient is HIV test returns positive um, and they are not in front of me and they're not in my exam room, I'm actually legally not allowed in New York State to give the positive result over the phone because there's the risk that the patient may do something, may commit suicide, or may not have the immediate support that they need in order to deal with this test result, positive test result. And so I have to bring them into the office in order to deliver the positive test result. And when you bring them into the office or you have this conversation, how much time do you allow for this? Or what kind of interactions do you do? Do you hug? Do you... I know that some of the groups that Stephanie and I are in, there's actually a recent discussion about, do you hug a patient? Do you touch a patient or not? So I'm just kind of curious even more of some of the nonverbal communication that you do as far as time, touch, or anything like that, that is part of your discussion. That is a wonderful question. I think that it really depends on your personal style and um, if you have an established rapport with the patient. Oftentimes, when I've diagnosed patients with HIV, they are coming in for routine STI screening. They are not taking PrEP. And, you know, I try to sit with them for as long as I can. And I also, the good thing is that in the clinic where I work, we have incredible support. We have social workers and mental health counselors there to facilitate in the diagnosis, um, in delivering the diagnosis. And 
So, you know, the initial appointment where we're diagnosing the patient tends to be longer. And we really focus on the patient and what their experience with that diagnosis is in that moment. And you really have to read the patient. And I have been known to hug and maybe even put my hand on the knee. And so I am somebody who believes in the power of human touch. And so I am someone to do that. But I really do think that it depends on the patient and how sort of they're responding to what you've just told them. So what would you say to the provider who maybe doesn't have all these excellent resources like you have within your clinic? Maybe they're in a rural area and, you know, it's just them telling this patient. What tips would you have for them? That's a great question. I think that if there really isn't any other support, I think close follow-up is incredibly important. And making sure that when you're not in front of the patient and there to support that patient, that that patient has support outside of the clinic and actually getting like the names of those people and seeing if the patient would be okay, like identifying an emergency contact for the patient. And disclosure can be an issue too, um, which is usually talked about at that first visit. Like, you know, is there anyone who you feel comfortable telling this to, a friend, a partner, because, you know, it's going to be really important that you have support outside of the clinic. So I think for a provider who is screening and diagnosing, it's important to make sure that that the patient has close follow-up and has support outside of the clinic as well. Is there anything else that you make sure you're aware of or occurs during that initial diagnosis conversation? Like you had mentioned, do you have support outside of this room? Do you feel comfortable telling someone? Is there anything else that you walk through and double check or assess during that initial conversation? Yes. So I learn more about the patient's understanding of HIV and what it does to the body because there are a lot of misconceptions and there are a lot of myths out there. And it's not uncommon to hear, oh, gosh, I'm going to die now. And that's just not the case. We have incredible treatments and we are able to get patients viral load to undetectable pretty quickly. Um, And patients are able to live long and healthy lives, just like those who aren't living with HIV. And I make sure that they leave that room understanding that. And my last question kind of surrounding this, too, is at what point do you feel comfortable for them to leave the room? Yeah, I and that I think takes a little bit of clinical gestalt, but I think that Speaking to them, talking to them, getting a good, solid understanding of how they're processing this and, you know, making sure that they, you know, have a plan for follow up and that they have good contact information for them and that they are feeling, if not okay, but at least a little bit more reassured about the diagnosis that was just given to them. And that they feel that they can trust you and that you are going to take care of them and that it's all going to be okay. And if you feel that the patient is at that point, then, and, and worst case, like they're not going to do anything to hurt themselves. then I think that it's okay to, you know, let them leave the room. 
And I guess what do you do in the situation where you do fear they are going to hurt themselves? What steps do you take then? Again, that's where I have, I, I, you know, I call my colleagues for support so that they can work closely with them and spend a, maybe more time with them than even I can in talking with them through that and reassuring them. So I wanted to go back to the story that you told us earlier about the transgender woman with HIV who exchanges sex for money and how you try not to judge or lecture and being understanding that this is something that she has to do to survive. And you said that you talked to her about protecting herself and protecting others. Can you be a little bit more specific on what you say and how you approach that without being judgmental. So once the patient discloses to me that they're exchanging sex for money, I ask them about condom use. Some patients will say that they are compensated more if a condom isn't used. And so I still encourage them to use condoms. But then I also, if they are living with HIV, I talk to them about the importance of staying on their medications and taking them daily as prescribed in order to keep their viral load undetectable so that transmission risk is low to a partner. Some people have consistent partners who are giving them money in exchange for sex. And so I have recommended to the patient to talk to these consistent partners about going on PrEP if they are not living with HIV themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about PrEP, what that is, what it does? Yeah, so PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And the current method of PrEP that we have is in the form of a one-tablet regimen called Truvada. And it consists of two antiretroviral medications. People living with HIV would take Truvada plus something else. But then it was FDA approved in July of 2012 as a method of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's one tablet taken daily, and it's over 99% effective in reducing the risk of HIV transmission in individ- among individuals who are at high risk of acquiring HIV. So... Recently, we just recorded a podcast about single-payer insurance and just talking about insurance in general. And I'm just curious how PrEP and other HIV medications are covered by insurance, or is that something that is a big barrier for the LGBTQ community? So PrEP is covered by almost all insurance plans, and there is a an assistance program through the pharmaceutical company that makes PrEP. So Gilead, Gilead has an assistance program that can provide coverage for the medication because it can be costly otherwise. So I, I would say most patients are able to access it, but there are, you know, there is a subset of patients who maybe have the wrong insurance plan or haven't met their deductible and Truvada becomes costly for them, unfortunately. Thanks for asking those. I was, wasn't sure about some of those either. So those were good questions. So Dr. Shaw, earlier in our interview, you mentioned about providers taking a good sexual history and assessing patients' sexual orientation as well as their gender identity. And you also have used terms like cisgender, 
Can you give our audience a little bit more background on all those terms and what they mean? Yes, of course. A great question. So in terms of gender identity, so there is this idea that the gender you were assigned at birth may not be the gender that you identify as. So an individual assigned female at birth may identify as male in childhood or adulthood. And if this is the case, then this person would be called a trans male or a trans or of the trans masculine experience. Another individual who, let's say, was assigned male at birth may not identify as a particular gender at all. So they may use the pronouns they and identify as gender non-conforming or gender non-binary. So people on the gender spectrum either identify on one end as female or male, or they can identify somewhere in between. Now, gender identity does not correlate with sexual orientation. And sexual orientation refers to the gender or the genders that a person is attracted to. And this does not translate to sexual behaviors. So somebody may identify as straight or heterosexual, And this person may be a cis male who is sexually active with cis females. But you have to be careful because if they say, if you're talking to them about sexual activity and they say, and and then you've, you've determined that they're cis male and they say, oh, I'm straight, don't just move on from there go a little bit further and ask them, so are you, does that mean that you're sexually active with cis women? Or does that mean that you've ever been, you know, active with any other gender? Because somebody who may have had an experience with, who is cis male and has been active with another cis male, um, maybe once, may not bring that up and will identify as heterosexual or straight And you may miss the fact that they have actually had sex with the same gender. Does that make sense? Can you also just describe what you mean by cis? Yes. Transgender is when an individual does not identify as the gender that they were assigned at birth. So example would be an individual who was assigned female at birth, but identifies as male. So that is transgender. Cisgender is when the gender that was assigned at birth is consistent with the gender that they identify as. So a female assigned at birth identifying as female. Does that make sense? Yes. And then I just want to make this part once again explicitly clear. So can you just discuss again who a trans man would be and who a trans woman would be? Right. So a trans woman is an individual who was assigned male at birth and has the chromosomes XY and identifies as female. And they now 
identity does not, so just because an individual identifies as female doesn't necessarily mean that they are on hormones or that they've had surgery or that they've even socially transitioned, meaning that they dress or speak or act a certain way. Everyone's gender journey is unique. And so when I say that an individual is a trans female, that just, all I'm saying is that this person identifies as female but it does not tell me anything about their unique gender journey, which could include a social transition. It could include hormone therapy. It could include gender affirming surgery or all of the above. So a trans masculine person is someone who is assigned female at birth, has XX chromosome and identifies as male. Okay. Perfect. And the other thing I want to talk about is you had mentioned pronouns. And I'm just wondering, how do you approach pronouns in your practice? Okay, so with patients, I always ask them, so what pronouns do you use? And then I put that in the chart. And if it's a new patient to me, I will, you know, it's part of sort of my history taking, what pronouns do you use? And all of our nurses and medical assistants are trained to ask the same question, what pronouns do you use? And many of us actually wear a pronoun badge on our name tag that just to encourage an environment and to create an environment that is supportive of unique pronouns. I think that brings up another great point. You talked about creating an environment that encourages this. What other ways does your clinic create a more patient-centered environment for your LGBTQ population? Well, I think that... My clinic does a really good job of hiring people who are mission-driven and who are from the community or strong allies of the community. Everyone is really friendly and really kind and understands that everyone has, that all of the patients walking through the door have a unique story and have a unique experience in their lives. So being really kind and warm and friendly is the first thing. And just visually, there are a lot of pictures everywhere of the types of patients that we see. And they are of all races, all backgrounds, all religions, all genders. And those pictures are all over the clinic to help facilitate a warm and friendly environment. Perfect. I know that kind of took us off a little path, but Stephanie, you have another question. So earlier you mentioned a term gender dysphoria. Could you tell our audience what that term means? So gender dysphoria is an incongruence between an experience or expressed gender and primary and secondary sex characteristics. So In other words, there's a strong desire to be of a different gender than what they were assigned at birth. And this dysphoria is really referencing the significant distress or even functional impairment that can come with this incongruence. Patients who have gender dysphoria oftentimes feel that they aren't being accepted by society, and this can lead to feelings of clinically significant distress and functional impairment. So that, that is what I meant when I, when I said gender dysphoria. Also, when you talked about gender dysphoria earlier, you mentioned that doctors can trigger this in patients. And I'm just wondering, 
how does that happen? And how can we make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah. So it's interesting that you brought up, brought that up. So there was a study done that found that transgender adults have a really high rate of lifetime suicide attempts. Studies showed that it's anywhere between 25 to 43%. And there was a study that showed that among those individuals who reported a previous suicide attempt, that 60% of them had reported that a doctor or healthcare worker had refused to treat them. So some providers just feel not comfortable providing care. So they even they may come to the exam room with the best of intentions. They may say like, I don't know how to treat you and I don't even know where to send you. And that can be really isolating for a patient and make them feel like an alien. And that's actually what my patient has told me. That's how she had been made to feel one time by a medical provider or even a medical provider like saying things like, are you really a man? Are you really a woman? Or using the wrong pronoun when the patient had already said, I prefer he and the provider, you know, turning to the nurse and saying like, you can give her the vaccine. So things like that can be really triggering for patients. And so trying to avoid being insensitive and trying to understand that patients already come with poor access to care and something else that can be hard Even medical providers with the best intentions can come in not knowing a lot about, let's say, hormone therapy. And sometimes patients feel like they are teaching the medical provider how to take care of them. And that can be really hard for them as well and create a barrier and make them feel like they aren't getting good care or they aren't getting the best care that they deserve. So what advice would you have? Because, I mean, obviously this exists where care providers just don't know what to do or, you know, because they this might be something that they don't run into in their clinic or work with this type of population. And so is there a way that care providers can communicate in some way, you know, I don't know what to do, but here's how we can handle it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I think that if a patient comes to your office requesting, for example, hormone therapy for as part of their gender affirming care, I think it's okay to say, hey, listen, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to, you know, prescribe hormones, but I do know somebody who can. And like really making sure that they are linked to care because. Again, patients understand that not every provider feels comfortable providing every type of care in medicine. So I think that it's important to have a medical provider in mind who can do that for the patient and making sure that they are linked to care. Because a lot of patients will say like, oh, I was told, you know, he didn't do that night or this, this doctor didn't provide that type of care and I didn't know where else to go. Okay, so, you know, it's okay to admit you don't know, but then maybe have a follow-up of, but here's someone who does, and getting them in contact with them. Exactly. Would you also say, I mean, you had used the example of hormone therapy. Does this also translate the same to an HIV diagnosis and HIV care? 
Yes. So linkage to care is one of the big topics in HIV medicine, and it's really important to make sure that they that patients who are diagnosed with HIV have appropriate follow-up and that they are linked to care. And one of the initiatives that we are doing is starting treatment the day of diagnosis because there studies have shown that that has dramatically improved linkage to care. That once a patient starts taking the medications that same day, then they are more likely to return and have close follow-up. Now, if, if a diagnosis is made by a provider who doesn't feel comfortable managing HIV, it is their duty to link them to a medical provider who can manage the HIV sooner rather than later. Do you know, are there any resources for care providers to find out who does provide this care or this is the care that we should start out with? Yes, there is. I believe on the American Academy of HIV Medicine website, there is a list of HIV certified providers. So most of our audience might not provide HIV care, but they are going to care for patients with HIV. Do you have any communication tips for those providers who just provide general health care for patients with HIV? So I would say that it's important for medical providers to remain open-minded and recognize that everyone has their own unique story and their own unique experience. Patients should ultimately feel comfortable talking to their medical provider about their bodies and their concerns and their sexual practices and their substance use, if that is something that they wish to disclose. And oftentimes, patients are willing to open up about all these things if a provider just asks. But many patients might not feel that their providers want to know or care to know because they just don't ask. So important things can be missed if they're not brought up. So I think just keeping an open mind and creating a comfortable environment so that patients are able to open up to them. So you just brought this up and you brought it up before about drug use. And I'm just wondering as a provider, again, kind of with the whole disclosure of HIV, how do you handle when a patient discloses to you that they do use drugs? So substance use is common in this community. High rates of tobacco use, substance use specifically like party drugs such as crystal meth, GHB, poppers, and alcohol use. And again, my approach is that of harm reduction. So it's about making sure that the patients have the resources that they need in order to stay safe and to protect themselves. They are using crystal meth and going on these benders and having sex with multiple people. Then I make sure that you know, they are on PrEP, that they have access to condoms, that they are living with HIV, then they are taking their medications. And if they are ready to quit or to reduce their use, then make sure that they are linked to substance use programs and to mental health services. So that's really how I approach substance use is really with sort of this overarching principle of harm reduction. And one of the harm reduction techniques you just mentioned was condoms. And I'm just wondering, does your clinic, do you have a program where you offer free condoms or do you have some sort of resource where people can get free condoms or reduce cost? 
we have tons of condoms everywhere (laughs) for free. (laughs) And is that something that you guys have like a special grant for or how do you fund having those condoms? I know that we recently talked to a doctor in a rural area and, and she was talking about how she wishes that she could just have condoms in her room so that patients, especially women in rural areas who don't feel comfortable buying them over the counter would have a safe space to get them. So I'm just wondering how how do you fund the condoms in your clinic? So that's that's interesting. You know, I, I feel like I'm spoiled sometimes and forget that I, you know, live and work in an urban area and have access to all these resources. So I really appreciate when you bring up cases or situations where this might not be the case. So we actually get most of our condoms from the Department of Health. So I wonder if this doctor in the rural area could connect with the Department of Health and either in like the, the neighboring in the city or the state and see if she were able to get condoms. But that's actually where we get most of our condoms is from the Department of Health. Okay, yeah, I didn't know if you had that or some sort of private funding or grant that you that you get those through. No. So Dr. Shaw, Nicole, and I would both like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? Yeah, so I think that care for the LGBT community can easily be incorporated into regular primary care settings if medical providers feel empowered to communicate to their patients about sexual behavior, sexual orientation, and gender identity. I think that in general, if you approach patients with compassion and empathy and try to do a good job of taking a thorough history, it becomes that much easier to expand your reach and care for patients who may otherwise feel underserved. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, yeah, I too would then like to add thank you so much, Dr. Shaw, for talking with us. This was very informative, and I hope that our listeners found it informative as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. <laughs>